Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Uh, good morning. I am Rob Green. I'm just one of the elders here at Covenant that has the pleasures of serving. Uh, so I just want to welcome you all. First time guests, everybody. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the uh, post-Thanksgiving holiday hustle. And uh, before we get started, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the folks here. Um, I just ask that your word be spoken clearly, um, that your word goes out and does not return void. We lean on your promises. I just ask you to give me clarity of thought and mind uh, to thaw hearts, let people receive what you have to say and what you alone have to say. Be with us this morning and uh, be with us always. In your name, amen. Cool. So this morning, I have one simple question to start with for you all. Have you ever prepared for something? Yeah. But I mean like really prepared for something, okay? Uh, Not something that was, uh, I have to do tomorrow, I have to do in two days. Have you prepared for the, I got to do this next week or next month? Or, hey, it's 12 months out, but I know that I have to do this next year, right? Something that has a hard stop date too, right? You're like... I get six months to get ready for this, and if it doesn't happen, that's, yeah, that's not good. I think most people would look to the classics out there if you think of something like this. Something like getting married, I plan my wedding, having a kid, nine months, and you know, we're stuck. Uh, getting ready for a job interview, uh, job interviews these days I hear are pretty tough. Um, or even, I don't know, preparing a sermon to preach the, the Sunday after the first holiday? Come on, Kyle. Uh, <coughs> I think he planned this. When I think of something like this, personally, my mind always goes back to grad school. Uh, a dozen or more years ago, I decided to go back to grad school. It was a fun time. I quit my job. We got married. We bought a house. And I found myself in a huge auditorium. Um, for any of you Toledo fans, I went to Toledo. So we were in the giant auditorium in the engineering building. And I was listening to speakers describe what the next two to four years of my life were going to be like, around, you know, along with all my fellow students. I wasn't listening. <laughs> I was wondering about when I could get out of here. I was like, okay, this is day one. Can I graduate already? How could I prepare for that? What were the steps that I was going to take? Because, you know, I had just gotten married, and we had a house, and maybe wanted to have kids soon and wanted to get on with our lives. And there was no pressure, none at all, okay? So I had this event that I was anticipating, graduation, right? I had to go through this process, write a dissertation, and graduate. I had this huge sense of excitement. Uh, To be fair and to be open with you all, uh, as my dad tells the story, I had wanted to be a professor since I was in fourth grade, okay? So this was like the culmination of me making my dreams come true, making this career change. Uh, So I was pumped. And then there was a third feeling lingering in there, um, somewhere right about here, that was that overwhelming anxiety and dread (laughs) that I had just taken a pay cut, and we had a mortgage, and I was married, and I didn't know if I could actually make this happen, and I needed to finish this so that we could move on with our lives, right? We wanted to work on our house, we wanted to have kids, we wanted to go forward. 
So this was a marathon. It was not the sprint that I wanted it to be. It was long, there were milestones, and I was going to be in it for the long haul. And I was focused, I was determined, I was excited, and I was anxious. And then, despite the fact that I was not paying attention, the speaker in the auditorium said something that has stuck with me to this day, um, and is perhaps the best advice that I've ever received on goal preparation. Do one thing each day towards your dissertation. At the time, it didn't hold much meaning. It went in one ear and out the other. But looking back, it held all the meaning. That was the single phrase that helped me focus, dig myself out when I was overwhelmed, and it's still something I pass on to my students today. So I did one thing, day in, day out, over and over, reminding me where I was going. Some days were great. Some days were not. Some days good things happened. Some days were real showstoppers, and I thought that this journey was over. But I had this rhythm to my life at this point, right? I was marching towards this goal. I hit some milestones along the way. You always have milestones in these long processes, so I remember making progress, right? The last time I had to take an actual class in a classroom, the first paper I published, the first time I gave a talk, all these kind of things. But that's how my life was for years, right? I did one thing, and then one thing, and then one thing, and then some milestone, and then one thing. And on Monday, I did one thing. And on Tuesday, I did one thing. And this was life, right? One thing, one thing, one thing. And we got closer and closer to that graduation day, the dissertation defense. We got it set, right? Eventually, I got there. We had a date. We were like, this is happening on this day. And my rhythms started to change. So instead of doing new work, I started pulling my work together in writing. A few months out, I started throwing together a presentation, one slide at a time, crafting, perfecting, you know. We advertised, like, hey, come see this. And then my rhythms really changed, about two weeks out, right? This was on the cusp. I had to do this thing. I had everything down. My dissertation was written, my slides were made, I had a script. And then I really started to prepare. This wasn't like talks I had given before, where I was like, hey, outline, I'm good, let's wing it and see what happens, right? Um, it wasn't, I have a few slides, I can talk through these. No, this was me, all alone in my office, whether at the university or at home, two to three times a day, every weekday, for two weeks before my dissertation happened, giving myself a one-hour presentation, <laughs> over and over and over again. And suddenly, I wasn't doing the same thing, I was do or I wasn't doing one thing, I was doing the same thing. My rhythms had drastically changed. And then the day of my defense actually came. And I knew things had really changed because my wife came to school with me. <laughs> Which, I don't know if any of you have ever had your spouse or partner come to your job. That's a signal that something has changed. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a big deal. So I stood up and confidently, proudly, anxiety and excitement coursing through my veins, gave an absolutely riveting 60-minute academic talk it left no room for questions, no room for doubt that I had succeeded. And how did I know that I had prepared well for this and actually succeeded? Well, my committee's vote mattered, but it didn't matter as much as this fact. I knew I was a true academic at that point. I had arrived because I looked out in the audience, and my talk had put one of my co-advisors fast asleep in his chair. <laughs> Oh, it was a real win. Um, and then after that, I crashed, right? We had the event, I crashed. Uh, 
The weight released, the shoulders went down, the stress dropped out of my back. I slept like a baby. Right? So I did it. I prepared. I made it. And many of you have done this uh, on a variety of things, large and small, short-term, long-term, all these kinds of things. I had an event to prepare for. I prepared over the long-term. I built these regular rhythms to accomplish my goal. And eventually, I prepared in the short-term. Right? I changed those rhythms as my defense became imminent so that I could perform at my best when it finally occurred. I had felt and lived through all that, the anticipation, the anxiety, the joy, and the sweet relief that comes right with that final event. So you may be asking this question, why tell this story now, post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas? Well, I'm going to make the argument today that we are a people of preparation. Okay? As a community of believers, we are a people of preparation. I'm going to say that from the beginning, from day one, that's what we're designed to do. God's built us, designed us to constantly be preparing for what he has in store for us. And if you don't believe this, we're going to start in the beginning, in Genesis 2. All right? God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. So God formed from the dirt of the ground all the animals of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature that was its name. The man named the cattle, named the birds of the air, named the wild animals, but he didn't find a suitable companion. God put the man into a deep sleep. As he slept, he removed one of his ribs and replaced it with flesh. God then used the rib that he had taken from the man to make woman and presented her to the man. All right, you're going to find out this is a morning of questions, right? I ask a lot of questions. Why did God bring the animals to Adam to be named. Did you ever think about that? To give them names? Okay, I'm in. To show authority over the animals? Absolutely. To fulfill his role in creation? Perfect. Okay? But what I think is the core reason was that God was showing Adam that he was different and he was alone. Adam was made in God's image, and there wasn't another like him. But God was also preparing Adam for the arrival of Eve. This event was coming. God knew it was coming. God was going to make a companion for Adam, and Adam didn't even know it. This big thing was about to happen. So what does a good God do? He prepares Adam, just like any parent would prepare their kid or teacher, their students. And how does he do it? He parades the animals in front of him one by one and says, Adam, look. Evaluate. Name them. And can you like, almost feel the anticipation? Every new animal that comes up. Is this, this one like me? Can I? They don't look like me. Those wolves, ah, cuddly, they bite. Pigs, they roll in way too much mud. I can't do this. You get the picture, though, right? And you can feel what he probably felt, this anticipation. Who's like me? Turning to the, there's no one like me? Who do I get to, to chat with? Who can I hang out? Who can I share with? And you can feel a change from this like, anticipation to this sadness, from who's like me to I have no friend, no partner. I feel incomplete. And God knows this. God knows that he hasn't yet fully expressed his image, the fullness of who he is in creation. But before he does, he has to prepare Adam for it so that he understands what's happening. So he feels the need, so he anticipates what's coming with both a joy and an anxiety. And what does God do? Who does God create? Eve. 
And I have to share with you, I've heard Eve called the helper, the little G God, the helpmeet, even the ally. But personally, I most appreciate the translation uh, of Eve that the Bible Project uses. If you don't know the Bible Project, they're a great nonprofit organization. We use their materials around here all the time. They use the translation, the rescuing ally. Why? Because Eve completes the expressions of God's image in creation. She's Adam's ally to rule and subdue and multiply. And God uses her to rescue Adam from being alone, to rescue creation from experiencing an incomplete expression of God himself. Eve's an ally. She's a rescuer. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, so he prepared him to receive Eve because God prepares us for things we don't even know are coming. God prepares us for all the things that we don't even know are coming. And by the way, Eve sort of sounds like someone else we know of in Scripture, yeah? Maybe a bit. It's a word people of preparation. But let's go forward a couple chapters, all right? So ahead a couple stories, we move on through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and we find the Israelites enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. And God was about to do this big thing, right? Deliver the people out of Egypt. They were anticipating the deliverance of God. How do we know that they were waiting, that they were anticipating that we were preparing? Two ways. First, I'd argue uh, anyone that's enslaved or oppressed is hoping for deliverance and rescue. I would be. I'm sure you would be too. Okay? Two, God said he would. If you go back to Genesis 15, God said to Abram, know this, your descendants will live as outsiders in a land not theirs. They'll be enslaved and beaten down for 400 years. Then I'll punish their slave masters and your offspring will march out of there loaded with plunder. So they waited. They anticipated and they knew what was coming. Rescue was coming. Deliverance was on the horizon, but it was far, far off. And they were waiting, preparing for that day. And then one day it was about to happen. It was imminent. Well, it was closer. God raised up Moses, a baby in a river, raised as an Egyptian prince who kills a man and then runs away and returns. And suddenly we're nine plagues later in the story, and we read in Exodus 12, God said to Moses and Aaron while still in Egypt, this month is to be the first month of the year for you. Address the whole community of Israel. Tell them that on the tenth of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one lamb to a house. If the family is too small for a lamb, then share it with a close neighbor, depending on the number of persons involved. Be mindful of how much each person will eat. Your lamb must be a healthy male, one year old. You can select it from either the sheep or the goats. Keep it penned until the 14th day of this month and then slaughter it. The entire community of Israel will do this at dusk. Then take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which you will eat it. You are to eat the meat roasted in fire that night along with bread made without yeast and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water. Make sure it's roasted. The whole animal, head, legs, and innards, don't leave any of it until morning. If there are leftovers, burn them in the fire. And then verse 11, and here is how you are to eat it. Be fully dressed with your sandals on and your stick in your hand. Eat in a hurry. It is the Passover to God. Can you, can you feel it? God prepared the Israelites for centuries for this deliverance. They had been oppressed, making bricks of mud and straw, hanging on hope, with likely one line of scripture echoing in their minds. Your offspring will march out of there loaded with plunder. 
Your offspring will march out of there loaded with plunder. They thought, we'll be leaving this place. God will save. Our rescue is coming. And I'd argue that that was part of their regular rhythm, their mode of existence, their every day. And then Moses arrives, and rescue is no longer coming. It's here. Deliverance is no longer on the horizon. Deliverance is imminent. And suddenly, that everyday rhythm of oppression, of making of bricks, mud, and straw, day in and day out, is interrupted with new events. Moses is here. Moses and Aaron are here. They're talking to Pharaoh. Can you hear the murmurs? His staff turned into a snake. And then, water turns to blood. Frogs cover the land. Flies engulf Egypt. The land is engulfed in darkness. The lights go completely out for three days. Can you feel it build? That long-term hope, that goal, the deliverance, the rescue they knew was coming had finally come, and the world was being turned upside down because it was imminent. And suddenly it's time for Passover, and we're at verse 11. Here is how you are to eat it. Be fully dressed with your sandals on and your stick in your hand. Eat in a hurry. It's the Passover to God. Everything had changed. The Israelites were ready to go. They didn't go to bed and expect to go back out and make bricks the next morning. They didn't use yeast to let their breads rise. Their bags were packed. Their possessions were stowed. If there's kids in here, if there were classes, they were canceled permanently. They were ready to walk out of Egypt at the slightest moment's notice. Why? Because preparation for the imminent breaks all of our regular rhythms. The preparation for the imminent breaks all of our regular rhythms. And I think it's even crazier than this because God was giving Israel a shadow of what was to come. Not only was he delivering them for what he had prepared for, in the same moment he was preparing them for the next thing coming. Right? So if you go on to read, I will go through the land of Egypt on this night and strike down every firstborn in the land, whether human or animal, and bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am God. The blood will serve as a sign of the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No disaster will touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This will be a memorial day for you. You will celebrate it as a festival to God down through generations, a fixed festival, celebration to be observed always. You will eat unraised bread for seven days. On the first day, get rid of all the yeast from the houses. Anyone who eats anything with yeast from the first day to the seventh day will be cut off from Israel. The first and the seventh days are set aside as holy. Do no work on those days, only what you have to do for meals. Each person can do that. The Passover was a shadow of what was to come. God was setting the stage, preparing the entire community for the eventual sacrifice of the Lamb of God, of Jesus, that takes away the sin of the world one of the first glimpses that God would always provide a way to pass over his people, forgiving their evil, protecting them as those around them suffer the consequences of their own choices. And the Israelites were never to forget what God had done. The remembrance was to be a festival to God throughout the generations, a fixed celebration to be observed always. Why? Because God was preparing the community for the eventual arrival of the Messiah. Of Jesus, he was building regular reminders and rhythms into their lives because preparation for the long term requires regular rhythms. So preparation for the long term requires regular rhythms. And that brings us to here. We come to where we are now, Christmas, the arrival of Christ on the scene, the interjection of the Messiah into human history. 
Passover was in place and the Jews had expected the Messiah for a long, long time. For the community of believers, the festivals, the rituals, the temple, the scripture all helped them prepare for the arrival of the Messiah as they waited not tens or hundreds, but thousands of years. The scriptures speak to this often providing prophecy along with all those other things that point forward to a coming Messiah. You probably know most of these verses. Genesis 3.15, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Micah 5, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, of ancient times. And this long-term preparation, this celebration of festivals like Passover, the reading of scripture that pointed forward to Christ, these rhythms that went from months to years to decades to centuries, they all culminate in one moment that shatters everyone's regular rhythms as they become imminent. We jump ahead to Luke 1, where Gabriel shows up for the first time in a long time to a priest named Zechariah, and we learn the following. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have prayed a lot and want a child. Zechariah and his wife are very old and are not going to have a child. Right? Elizabeth is also Mary's cousin, FYI. Gabriel shows up and says, hey, you will have a child. And Zechariah basically says, sure we will. And what happens? Poor old Zechariah can't talk <laughs> until the baby is named, right? He doesn't believe it, and his lips are sealed until the baby, right, who will be John the Baptist, is born. The couple had prayed for years, was unable to conceive and had settled into their regular life and priestly duties, serving God, accepting what God had given them. And then, bam, the coming Messiah is imminent, Elizabeth's pregnant, and Zachariah is speechless. They built these long-term, regular life rhythms based on what they thought God had in store for them. And then this... Well, as the Messiah became imminent, this upset their entire life. It changed the way that they were preparing for what God had for them. And then Mary's everyday rhythms are thrown into a bit of disorder as well. We can read the Christmas story in Luke 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name Mary, upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. 
You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. He'll be great, called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll rule Jacob's house forever, no end, ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I've never slept with a man. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called Holy, the Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son? Old as she is, everyone called her barren. And here she is, six months pregnant. Nothing you see is impossible with God. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. Then the angel left her. The long term became the about to be. The event that the community had hoped for for centuries was about to occur. And it interrupted everybody's rhythms in a big way as it became imminent. Zachariah and Elizabeth were settled into what God had given them. Mary was engaged, awaiting her new life and plans and all that was ahead. And then, Elizabeth's pregnant and shouldn't be. Zachariah should be able to talk. He can't. Mary's pregnant. She shouldn't be. The world's flipped. The stories fly. The gossip trains left the station, and these women and their husbands are now preparing for the imminent arrival of new children. Because, like I said before, in God's design... Preparation for the imminent breaks all of our regular rhythms. And that brings us to today. Here, four days post-Thanksgiving, the holiday season has just begun, all pointing towards and culminating in Christmas Day. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been preparing for this since last Christmas. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have been dropping hints for Christmas wish lists, maybe since February. Postponing that big birthday gift for the biggest holiday of the year. Planning vacations and getaways while the kids are off, school and family and friends are free to travel. Uh, we even have this practice run at gift giving, Christmas in July, anyone? And many of you, and perhaps most importantly, have been anticipating that very first Christmas song that you are finally allowed to play on Thanksgiving Day without being attacked or criticized. <laughs> And now we're here. Thanksgiving's over, and the world's changed. Our normal rhythms have flipped because everything is imminent. Christmas trees are going up. The music's changed. The parties are starting. Vacation is coming. Schedules are more erratic and fuller than they were. The joy of, and anxiety, if you're me, of gift buying, present giving, and looking forward to those sweetly awkward moments with relatives is all building around us. And my question is simple. How have we prepared for Christmas all year long? Culturally, it's clear. I just walked you through it. Everybody knows these things. We've been doing these. We've been prepping for this month all year, and now those rhythms have changed as the holiday is imminent, just weeks away. But as Kyle is so fond of saying around here, we are rainbow trout. We swim upstream. So how have we been preparing for the real Christmas? the celebration and the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. All year we've had our regular rhythms of church going on. Sunday service, communion, baptism, kids' church, retreats, community groups, all the things that point us back to this day when we remember and celebrate how God came to our rescue. Hopefully we've all had our own personal and family rhythms of scripture and worship and community that have reminded us of the same. And now it's all here. It's imminent. And those rhythms are interrupted. 
The world is changed because we are celebrating and remembering Jesus' first coming, even as we continually are reminded and look forward to his next and final return. So what does it look like for us, the community of believers, to be like the Israelites, on the cusp of deliverance from Egypt, prepared for what God has for us this season? I think we should ask ourselves, are we prepared for the wonder and amazement of what God has done to return to our hearts and minds? Are we prepared for joy and hope to reawaken in ourselves and our families? Are we truly ready, truly prepared to soak in all that God has not only made ready, but has made us ready for during this holiday season? And if you think you're not, or we're not, I'd hope that we'd do one thing, just one thing, every day to prepare us. Because my hope is that we find ourselves to be a community of believers that has done that one thing, big or small, each day to prepare for the celebration and remembrance of Christ's birth while looking forward to him coming again. My hope is that by the time it's Christmas morning and we find ourselves in it, when the kids are scrambling for presents, when the adults and parents are groggily sipping coffee, when relatives are filling our homes and Christmas lights are filling our vision and presents are stealing our attention, my hope is that we would be a community that has been well prepared for the goodness and the truth and the hope and the joy and the wonder and the light that this season brings. Amen? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for the slow burn of the year, for the ability to prepare in the long term to celebrate your son's birth, to celebrate your plan and your movement in history to change everything. We pray that as this time of year comes near, as Christmas is imminent and upon us, that you help us prepare our hearts and our minds and our family and our community, not just for the good and the bad of the holiday season, but for all the good that you provide, for the joy, for the wonder, for the life and the light. Fill us with it. Make us soft and receptive to it. And let us shine brightly, brighter than any Christmas lights we see this Christmas season. Amen.